Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians discuss car topics from a perspective you won't find anywhere else. My name is Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. And my co-host is trauma surgeon Stefan Moran, who has not only operated on countless car crash victims, but has also published research on car safety. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. I am Steve Schutz, and I'm here with uh, trauma surgeon and National Guardsman, uh, Stefan Moran, who was in Germany. I know you're going to talk about uh, Mercedes Museum later, but Stefan, what a trip. It was a great trip, but you know, I'd have to kill you if I told you what I actually did over there. But like, so <laughs> touch top secret business, but uh, I did. I got to go. I found the day we arrived, I ran immediately to the Mercedes Museum. Oh my God. Unbelievable. Just fantastic. Um, we'll talk about that later in the show, but and then the last day we got done late, but I jumped in the car, drove and got to the Porsche Museum right before they closed at six o'clock and got that done. Ate dinner, flew home. It was a very quick turnaround trip. Lots of business, but I squeezed in two of the greatest museums for any automotive fan. Yeah, we we talked uh, previously on a previous episode about uh, if you go to a, a place and there's anything there automotive, go see it, you know, and google to see what's there it's amazing what you can find you know you and i went together to the uh the wellborn um uh, muscle car museum uh last summer and boy it that was amazing you just you, you find this stuff and you go obviously you know for our or i'm sorry mercedes and and uh porsche uh museums are really the pinnacle but uh just find it find a place make the time it's always worth it you know i was over in germany Back in June, I went to the BMW Velt, which was worth it too. It's, it's these are these places are available. Uh, I hate to say it, Stefan. Maybe we, you know, it's a good thing you saw it now uh, while uh, Germany has electricity and power and heat. Oh yeah, <laughs> those things are apparently going away. <laughs> oh yeah, let's not get into that. That's terrible. But yeah, I, I know it's not funny. <laughs> it's, but it's, yeah, it's right. Yeah, it's. Oh, geez. All right. They're, they're All right. Let's of, move on. Yeah. Lots of, there's lots of news to talk about. What do you want to talk about first? Oh, well, I mean, uh, there's uh, so much news. Yeah. I, I want to start right away with something that is uh, bad. And everyone is, I'm sure we're like totally in the minority. I'm, I'm talking obviously about the Ferrari Perosag. It's, it's, uh, it's an SUV, it's a crossover, whatever it is, it's four doors. It seats uh, four people, and it's not a Ferrari. Yeah, the, I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, we went through this with Porsche and the Cayenne, and then Aston Martin did it, BMW did it, Mercedes did it. Now Ferrari, they have to speak to the shareholder, but it's very interesting, and I'm making a prediction here. They are limiting the Purosang to 20% of sales. They've yeah. said they will make for now for exactly for now. But at, at that price, I mean, it's right up there with a Rolls Royce Cullen and it's a pricey car, but they're going to sell them. They're just going to, they're going to sell every one they can make and they're going to make a shit ton of money and they're going to reach like Porsche 60% of sales will be this vehicle. Yes, I totally agree. For the record, 6.5 liter naturally aspirated Ferrari V12, 715 horsepower, 193 miles per hour, 3.3 seconds, zero to 60 in a truck or is, you know, it's a crossover, <laughs> but you know, it's a crossover. It, yeah. It's basically a station wagon, but you know, this is a four wheel drive monster. It competes with the, the Lamborghini Urus, the uh, Bentley Bentayga and the Rolls Royce Cullinan. Uh, Stefan, I'm going to start. I'm firing shots as as fast as I can. I'm going to start by saying this: <laughs> it looks a lot like the Mustang Mach E from the side. It does. It's got a very long bonnet, but you're right. Proportionally, I'd like to see one, but you know they they threw in the suicide doors. Um, yes, to be a, as a curiosity, I think they did everything they could to this thing to say that it's not a crossover SUV. Suicide doors, twelve cylinder, super long bonnet. I think they were just doing everything they can to say, well, it's not really an SUV, but it is. 
It's it it is. I hate it. It's three hundred ninety thousand awesome. dollars uh, without options. You know, every single one of these is going to go out the door for around four fifty to five hundred. This is pure profit. It's I, I hate it for a couple reasons, Stefan. Number one, and this is just emotional. Ferrari for me has always been special. It's more special than Lamborghini. It's more special than Aston Martin. It's more special than any of these other. It's more special than Rolls Royce. Ferrari is special, and I do, yeah. of course, know that there are Ferraris that, that that were made that were not special during difficult times. The Mondial from the eighties, the three sixty from the nineties, and of course the horrible three forty eight. Uh, they've made some bad cars. Uh, the 308 from the 70s wasn't so great. So they've made some cars that weren't great, but they were Ferraris. They were sports cars. They had manual transmissions. Well, not any, of course, now they don't. But these are special cars to find. This is like, this is almost sacrilege. Remember when they said the California wasn't special? It wasn't a real Ferrari. It was a cheap, you know, is their cheap version entry level car? Now they're doing this. I mean, the price is outrageous, but I had a, had a Ferrari V8. It was special enough for me. Um, yeah. These are these are very very special cars. Um, to me, Ferrari's been uh, different, and I put them in a different category. And it just it just bothers me. Oh, Stefan, it, it, it's they're the last of the holdout boutique manufacturer to come out with a crossover, and you know they did it a little differently than Porsche. This is not. An entry level vehicle in their lineup. This thing is super pricey, but looking at that Ferrari clientele, you know they're going to sell every one of them. I mean, the people that can buy a Ferrari, you know, at this level, they're going to buy. They're going to want the Ferrari and something else. You know, yes. they've got multiple Ferraris. So, yeah, yeah, it's pure profit motive. That's a public company. You know, Porsche is getting ready to go public. Oh my God, what may you know what may happen with that? As I'm, well, I'm but, afraid Ferrari. By the way, Ferrari for me has also been more special than Porsche. There's something. Always, yes, there's something yes. about Ferrari. Uh, a couple, Enzo, a couple, a couple numbers. Man, yeah, a couple numbers. I want to. I want to throw out there because you did mention that they are saying this is going to be limited to twenty percent of our out our output. Well, it used to be Luca Di Montalemo Zemolo. I don't know how to say his last name. The two CEOs ago, he was famously fired. I think in two thousand fourteen ish, and uh, he very famously said Ferrari wants to build as many cars as the demand is minus one. They always wanted to have a low number of Ferraris. Well, uh, in 2013, they made about 7,000 Ferraris. Uh, this year, they're going to make about 15,000. They've, they've totally increased. They've, in, in less than 10 years, they've doubled their output. They were never going to go, by the way, above 8,000, and now they're at 15,000. Why can't they go to 20,000? Uh, I bet they will. And therefore, yes. why can't they make more than 20%? You know why can't they they violate that principle too? I think they probably will. I think they're just they were trying to appease the Ferrarista. You know they're just trying to appease their fans. But yeah, you, you know their presence in F one, their presence in racing throughout history. I just you know, for old guys like us who it's just it's a it's a shot in the heart. I just I hate to see it. I'm sure Enzo is just rolling over in his grave. Yeah, he's the, he, he's probably he's probably done that a bunch of times. Uh, a bunch of, but now this is it. A, he's done. Yeah, this was this this was the stake in the heart. If he were if he were alive, uh, he'd probably buy a McLaren. Uh, by the way, the the new CEO of uh, McLaren hinted that they are looking at an SUV. Uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. And by the way, you know, um, last week uh, Mike McMillan and I were talking about. How it seemed likely, it, it, at least logical, for BMW to buy McLaren. Well, if that were to happen, uh, given the inclination of the current uh, McLaren CEO, uh, I don't think anybody would be surprised if there was a BMW X5 that got rebadged as the McLaren something or other. Yeah, that'd be interesting because McLaren's a holdout, and and you know they're a direct competitor to uh, to Ferrari, so they're not. Uh, like I said, they were very much like, no way are we going to do it. And now that the new CEO has hinted, yeah, uh, we could we could do an SUV. Hey, just saying though, every time a German automotive company has come to England and scooped up one of the companies, the end results have been excellent. Uh, yeah. I know. Jaguar, <laughs> Jaguar continues to languish under different holdership. So, but yeah, 
Yeah, I know. I know you're right. I, anyway, I, moving on to what, what I would consider a much happier news. I'm just disgusted by that Pearl saying. Uh, new Mustang, Stefan. Yeah, the new Mustang Dark Horse. They're bringing out the S650 Mustang, and it's an evolutionary Mustang, which is clearly understandable in the face of the slow conversion to electric vehicles. But I'm glad that Ford is going out with the last big hurrah, bringing out a Ford. Unlike Dodge, who's thrown in the towel on internal combustion engines, Ford, the new this new Mustang, 500 horsepower out of the Coyote V8 naturally aspirated. That's crazy horsepower. That's crazy. It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a lot of power. Uh, they're going to preserve the manual transmission. Yep, and uh, excellent. They're, you can get the Gertrag and the Tremec, depending on which model you get. It's the last hurrah, and it truly is a dark horse now in the automotive industry to be coming out with a new, upgraded Mustang, naturally aspirated. So I think it's wonderful. I'm excited about it. Yeah, they, um, they got some cool colors. I like it. Yeah, I'm, there's one quirky thing uh, that uh, uh, Doug DeMuro talked about on his uh, intro. Uh, the interior, of course, is modernized, which it needed to be modernized. Yes, uh, but it has these configurable screens, and it's all it's all digital. But one thing I thought was very cool: you can configure the gauge cluster in front of you to mimic. The gauge cluster from the '80s Fox body uh, Mustang. So uh, the the '86, '87, '88, kind of the second generation of the Fox body. That's cool. I read about that, and I read a lot of comments. People are like, "Oh man, could we do it from, you know, a '65 Mustang?" And to make basically a different skin, like you have on your phone for yeah. the gauge cluster, and clearly. I think you'll build. I mean, I, I can't see why they couldn't configure that, but I think that's really cool that you can change your cluster. You know, I've got on my bullet, I've got the, um, I've got the electronic as well, and I can do some minor configuration and change the colors and the looks. But I do like the way that Dark Horse, the, the new Mustang, has upgraded that a little bit, and I, I do like the new dash. I mean, I've got the old fashioned dual cowl, which I kind of like, goes with a bullet, but I think with the new electronics and moving thing towards the, that. I like the dash. It looks good. It's an upgrade. Yeah, I love it. I, I think it's totally, totally cool. Uh, there's something called the calm screen where it, it, it eliminates a lot of the extraneous information. It's kind of like the dark screen that Saab used to have. It kind of gets rid of uh, stuff you don't need when you're, when you just want to, you know, not have all that, that information It let's face it, you don't really need anyway. So that's, that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, maybe in the future they'll they'll maybe in a couple of years they'll they'll make it so you can do like a 64 65 gauge cluster, who knows. Um and you know, you mentioned uh the dark horse um is that what it's called the dark horse? It's called the dark horse. Yep, that's yeah, their their track. Yeah, track thing. So, so basically yeah, there's going to be a couple of levels of dark horse. So that's going to replace, you know, we had the bullet, we had the Mach 1, you know, these different limited edition Mustangs. So now the the high end Mustang limited edition is going to be the dark horse and you can get it in like a street configuration and then two different track configurations. And for the first time you're in, you can get carbon wheels on this car, which first time you couldn't get carbon wheels outside of being a Shelby Mustang. Right. Yeah. So, and it's got the Magnaride suspension and the only, you know, I would say with all cars, realistically i don't if you don't track your car i don't want a tail on the back of my car just like if i was to get a porsche 911 gt3 i'd get the touring i'd do the delete spoiler the spoiler on the back of the dark horse eh, i would love to do i mean i would want a factory delete on that but that's because realistically i'm never going to be taking my car to the track i don't need a spoiler because the fastest i go on the interstate well i'm not going to say how fast i go on the interstate <laughs> but <laughs> i'm not cornering where i need that downforce right but right. outside of that you know i read a lot of comments about the front end it's kind of like camaro-esque you know maybe it's upright I, I would have to imagine that is a little bit yielding towards pedestrian safety that's important that kind of um so i don't know exactly but i'd, I'd like to see it in real in real person but it's an evolutionary design it's nothing revolutionary but. Yeah, I th I think a couple things. Uh, you know, 
the Dark Horse is one more special edition that they can uh, make money on. I think there's there's going to be uh, Shelby GT350. There'll be another GT500. I'm sure there'll be another Bullet. There'll be another Mach 1, and now there'll be a Dark Horse. So this is one more special edition. I think Ford is saying, hey, we can really make some money here. Uh, people know it's the last generation of the internal combustion Mustang, so they will. Uh, people will line up to buy these. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, the Challenger is dead, as we discussed uh, at the end of the, the 2023 uh, calendar year. So that, that goes away. Uh, over the last five years, historically, Challengers and Mustangs sell about the same number. They kind of go back and forth, uh, but they're generally about the same number. So that competitor is going away. I think the Camaro is going away. The Camaro sells much fewer. Uh, it's about a third uh, as many Camaros as they sell Mustangs, and that one's going away. I'm sure it's going away. They haven't announced it, but I think it's going away. So do you take all that together? I think Ford is saying we can make some money here. Absolutely. And I mean, kudos to them for doing it. The, the pony's been around for a long time. And I, I think the name, people have kind of laughed about the name, but I think, no, really, it is, it is a dark horse to be introducing a new model, a new version of the Mustang as we're every, you know, California is leading the way as people are moving towards EVs. It's a dark horse in the competition and it's going to be, you're right, Challenger's gone. Camaro, and eh, you know, ever since since they had that Transformer, the latest body style, the Transformer body style, just just that that just never ever appealed to me from day one. Well, it didn't it didn't appeal it's, to a lot of people. Did they and just yeah, sales and the sales depict that? So yeah, they don't sell many. I think that uh, GM has decided we're gonna we're gonna uh, end the whole uh, internal combustion engine sports car thing with the Corvette. And we're not really going to, we're just going to let the Camaro die. That's uh, probably smart. People, people just don't, don't buy them. Right. And think about it. The Mustang is the only car left in the Ford portfolio. Yep. Yep. Is it? And, and it's a good one. I mean, it's, it's a good gotta, one. Yeah. You know, you, I know you love your Mustang. You, you gotta be tempted to, you know, I'm sure you look at that and say, damn, that'd be great. I'll look at it, but I'll tell you what, you know, being an old guy, the bullet, there's something, the bullet. I mean, you know, it's just there's too much nostalgia for me with the bullet Mustang is the, the color and it's such a subdued Mustang. People don't even realize it's a Mustang a lot of time when they see it. I would be it, shocked if this new Mustang did not have a bullet version. It would be cool to see if they did in a couple of years. Yeah, you wait a couple of years. Yep. Yep. Wait a couple of years and they're going to drag. They're going to drag this. I think the Mustang is with us to the very end. Uh, I, I completely agree. I'm so glad that they not only uh, announced that they're going to continue to build it, but radio transmission, five liter naturally aspirated V8 special versions. It's going to probably going to be eight more years of this. Uh, it makes me very happy. I'm excited. Finally, something exciting in the internal combustion engine world. Yeah. Yeah. So um, news wise, also the Nissan Maxima is dying and uh, the Maxima is something that they started building in 1981. And uh, it was, you know, a lot of people don't remember this, but the first Maxima, so that was 81 to 84, was real, real drive. And I still remember in 1985, they came out with the new Maxima that was that was front wheel drive. It looked a lot like the uh, real, I think they like did it on purpose. Like, hey, we're going to make this front wheel drive. And, uh, and they made it look like the rear wheel drive one just so people wouldn't be put off or something but anyway it's been front wheel drive since 1985 and uh the the third generation which was 88 to 94 was called the four-door sports car they actually had 4dsc a little sticker on the window that was the high point of the maxima it was a good driver's car after that it kind of they kind of sucked but stefan are you bummed to see the maxima leave yeah i had a maxima we had I had a two-door Honda Accord LX of 79, and then when Ellen's parents went to uh, some crazy island, Madagascar or something on sabbatical, we got their four-door uh, Maxima to drive. It was this light beige, lots of fancy electronics, and but it was a great driving car, and it was a real drive version. There was the four-door Accord at the time, and there was the Camry at the time, but if you were really cool and had some money, or wanted something a little sportier, get the Maxima was a sportier car to get. It yes. was it was the nice sport and sporty car of the three. 
Yeah. It definitely is it, is it league above the others. Always was. It had like, it had personality and uh, they really upped that with the, like I said, the third generation and they took what they, you know, this kind of uh, sporty thing that Dotson and then Nissan had, uh, they were racing. Uh, Paul Noman used to race uh, Nissan's. So they had their Z car, uh, they raced, they rallied with the 510. I mean, they really were kind of a sporty company that wanted to make cars that were sports cars and and uh, yeah, that third generation Maxima was great. Um, later, though, Stefan, I just got it got to be so mediocre. Um, the sixth, seventh, eighth generation. If you if you look at them, first of all, uh, the, all the sports car stuff went out the window. Second of all, so did a lot of their quality. Uh, they really cut costs, and it was a, pretty much a crappy car, almost almost just purely a rental car. And then they had the CVT. Uh. Listeners, yeah, for listeners, that's the continuously variable transmission. It, oh, it's just this awful thing that you find on a lawnmower that some car manufacturers put in their cars. Just hate it. But yeah, and the, also with the Maximum Lace, they had this weird C-pillar transition thing that the, the roof to the C-pillar, and the C-pillar is the is the is the backside that comes off from the roof down behind the rear doors. I just, yeah, the, the, I never the latest one is just they just ruined it. Yeah, it was uh, just, you know, it became a study in mediocrity. Quality was bad, uh, cheap parts uh, built to a price, and uh, nothing near the quality that you had with the Camry or the Accord. Uh, it just became a shadow of, of what it used to be. It used to be a great car. I'm not going to miss it. They probably kept it on a few years too long, maybe just to, to sell to rental fleets. But uh, the Maxima had a great start. Uh, a really, really good middle, and then a terrible end. Uh, again, I, I'm not going to miss it even a little bit. Yeah, but see, this is all the continued death of the sedan, the slow death and departure of the the four door sedan, and, and especially in America, Europe still has some four door sedans, but for America, you know, and the last one, I think the the I'm going to make another prediction here: the last four door sedan to go. It's going to be the Mercedes S class. I think that will stick with us forever as a limo kind of thing. But the limo guys, the hotel, the, all the limos that were pulling up to the hotel, what I would call limo, your your high end taxi, your old Lincoln Continental days, your your livery days, they were all these big fancy Mercedes minivans um, over there. That's what yeah. they that's what they're transporting the, the you know everybody around in. So I think it's the slow death of sedan and. Yeah, unfortunately, I love and, a four door sedan. And in this country, it's it's all being replaced by Suburbans and Escalades. Yes. Uh, you know, we were in New York recently, and uh, that's what you see. You see, you know, it used to be black cars, as you said. It used to be a Lincoln Town Car. Now it's been replaced by again Escalades and Suburbans and Yukon XLs. Uh, I think people like sitting higher, but uh, the the rich and famous in New York, uh, you don't see many sedans of any type. But having said that, I agree with you. I think the last sedan. Uh, will be the Mercedes S class, and uh, I, I'll miss sedans. But it's, you know, it's the way things are. It's the way customers are going. Uh, you got to produce what people want, and people want uh, SUVs and crossovers. So, uh, by the way, speaking of, of death, um, another uh, sedan that's dying. Uh, it's going to end at the same time. Not surprisingly, same platform uh, as the Challenger and Charger, the 300C, the Chrysler. Yeah, the Fentley, the faux Bentley. Remember that they first came out. Yeah, it did look like a Bentley when it came. Yeah, it looked like a Bentley. Sure did, and so they called it the Bentley, the fake, the fake Bentley. Um, But you know, the three hundred C, it was pretty cool when it came. It was a little bit gangsta when it came out, but it was a. I like the three hundred C. Yeah, and you know they're going to drop some big engines in that. I guess it's gone, but um, they'll have. Aren't they going to do some kind of a limited edition with that thing too? Dropping a big monster V eight in it in it before it goes. Yeah, you know they've had the the SRT versions. Okay. So uh, they will have something special, I'm sure. I don't think they've announced it yet, but I I'll bet they will. It makes sense. And uh, uh, just a quick story about the 300C. My son Peter, when he was young, uh, had this uh, almost like a, a Grand Theft Auto video game. It was not Grand Theft Auto, but it was something like that. And oh, well, yeah. At least would have never let him have that. No, <laughs> no GTA for, for Peter. No. But Peter was like you know eight or nine years old. And he had this video game uh, where you'd race around uh, L.A. at night. It was like L.A. Club or something like that. 
and you get to just like Grand Theft Auto, you get to pick your car. Well, it was you know Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Porsches and all kinds of cool cars. And Peter always picked the three hundred C. That's funny. I asked him why. He said it's the coolest car. And of course, I didn't want to tell him it's not even close to the coolest car. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay, but for him, you know, as an eight-year-old, he thought that was the coolest car. He he picked it all the time. That's the only car he drove in that video game. He didn't even he didn't even switch it out. So That's it's funny. cool. By the way, you have to conclude that Stellantis is killing Chrysler. They are starving at a product. Uh, they by the, when the three hundred C goes away, here is your Chrysler lineup. You have a Voyager minivan which is a uh kind of a stripped or low budget uh pacifica minivan and they also have nothing that's it. really <laughs> that's chrysler By i had way, no idea steve i mean so, you're kidding that so, so when the 300 c goes away there's yeah. nothing left of chrysler but that yes Yes, it's it's terrible. Uh, by wow. the way, I I had a feeling this was way this was going to go when uh, they finally uh, we've talked about this. They finally took the Ram platform and they made it into Moving SUV division, right? And they gave they gave that SUV to Jeep. So the Wagoner and Green and, and Grand Wagoner, Grand Wagoner and Grand Wagoner are off the Dodge off the Ram truck platform, and they compete with the Suburban and Escalade. Okay, that's fine. But they did not give a version to Chrysler. Oh, yeah, you're right. Chrysler's going to go the way of Plymouth. Well, I think they are, yes. And I, I, in fact, I'm sure they are. You can't starve a company of a product unless you unless you want to kill them. And I think that uh, soon uh, we will see Stellantis uh, kill off Chrysler, Fiat, and Alpha. Wow, that's yeah. my prediction. Yeah, we had a Chrysler Cordoba once a long time ago. Great ads. <laughs> that's really Ricardo Montalban. Ricardo Montalban. Rich Corinthian leather. Rich Corinthian leather. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, talk Ours about had it. the velour, though. Oh. Uh, we had the red velour interior. <laughs> Those were very common. You know, leather was expensive. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody had velour interiors. Even the yeah. Cadillacs, you know, they had that kind of weird cloth stuff. But Yeah. It was, you know, leather was expensive and, and yeah. people, people wanted to save money. So, uh, yeah, the, I th I'd say it's the Chrysler Cordoba was also uh, a study in mediocrity and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I Chrysler had a, had, a, had a great past, but they've had a lot of stumbles. They've had a lot of bad products, especially recently, but my gosh, in the seventies and eighties, they had a lot of crap. Uh, I'm not really going to miss uh, Chrysler. I'm sorry to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to miss them. Yeah, I don't know. Just yeah, I, I've never owned a Chrysler. My dad had one, and but is this one of those old American namesakes? It's going to be sad to kind of see it go away. But yeah, in the in the fifties and sixties, uh, they competed head to head with uh, Cadillac and and Lincoln, and then the, in the seventies, that really was no longer the case. The, the company couldn't afford to keep up, and then the eighties, they became largely largely irrelevant. And uh, and here we are. So, au revoir, uh, Chrysler. And uh, that brings us to um, uh, your trip in the Mercedes Museum. I mean, uh, I, I cannot wait to hear about that. I actually went to the Mercedes Museum in 2013. It's my last time there. Uh, and it was absolutely spectacular. And, of course, it's even better now. So, the, um, so listeners, the Mercedes Museum, I say, it has got, has got to be one of the nicest automotive and historic museums i've ever been to and it just you know comparing it to the porsche museum it just lets you know how big mercedes is and how important mercedes was in the development of the automobile so you drive out to it's basically it's like the mercedes complex it is you get off the the road you go in and just mercedes everywhere different their headquarters and buildings and everything's named Mercedes. And then there's this gorgeous modern building that comes up. It's got a huge area in front. And when I drove up, lots of people driven up their Mercedes, kind of like a, a cars and coffee kind of thing. But the museum, you walk in and it's basically a big spiral. You set giant mezzanine in the middle with the spiral that goes all the way around the outside up to the top and they've got two of these really cool elevators that shoot you to the top so basically you start at the top and you do a long spiral down all the way to the bottom 
And so you get to the very top and it's the very early history of Mercedes, their first car that they made. And what's really cool is that to the right, as you're going downhill, are all the cars on display. But to the left, they also have a pictorial history of the world going down. So every anything that occurred at the time, if they got a car from 1936, they've got pictures on photos on the left doing world history on the left and how Mercedes involvement in world history. So you, so I know my wife would have enjoyed going and doing the history part of the outside. So there's something for everybody there. So I give a lot of kudos to Mercedes for that. I, I, you're probably going to get to this, but in uh, describing their history, uh, they do not uh, gloss over their participation in uh, World War II and Nazism and all that. I mean, they they talk about forced labor that they used to make their cars. They did, and they they there's things about the concentration camps and the the Holocaust, and yeah, they, you're right. They they don't gloss over it, and it's right there. So I really admired. I was there for the cars. I would. I, I was. I was. I didn't have a whole lot of time, so I. I had to hit the cars that I wanted to hit and the history that I wanted to see. So I would glance over at some of the history stuff going around the outside, but I didn't get to see half of what I wanted to see because I was a, I was a man on a mission. Well, it, so, it, it, that, that gives you an idea of the scope. I mean, this is a big museum. It is absolutely huge. It's loaded with cards. It's loaded with artifacts. It's loaded with uh, signs and things like that. I mean, there's so much history there. You could spend a week there. Yeah. I mean, if I had to do it all over again, I would get there when they open. I would go my way down slowly, seeing all the side exhibits. I'd eat lunch at the wonderful restaurant they have. Then I would go back and finish it. But I didn't have that option. So a couple um, of the cars I do want to mention that were just absolutely fantastic. They had a 1936, the 500K, the Mercedes 500K was like the king of the cars back in the 30s. And they had a Roadster, two-hour Roadster in red that was just fantastic, absolutely gorgeous car. Very kind of brass era. Uh, just yeah, brass era. Spectacular but, car. But, you know, so that era you had a lot of the Dillahais and the French cars that were kind of fancy. But the German was, this Roadster just was a little bit more on the mechanical, serious side. It's not as flamboyant, but it just speaks, just speaks elegance in a way without being over the top. Just a beautiful car. And then off the side of those, all those 1930s cars. So you got this spiral and then there's a little going up on each side as they have a little side display. And they had the different transport vehicles on several floors. And I walked in there and there is the 1955 Ren Wagon Chanel transporter called the Blue Wonder. And this was a transporter that they made that they could put the 300 slr race car on the top of this transporter would do 106 miles per hour with the race car on the back i mean so i walk in there like oh my god there's the chanel transporter then on the back of it is the 300 slr which won the 1955 world championship for sports cars wow it won the grand prix of sweden the millimiglia and the targlia floria and then on it it said not for sale <laughs> <laughs> so i was like oh my because that's you know, funny when, we, when you talk mercedes and when you talk racing and uh before mercedes pull out in 55 mercedes owned the racing world with that 300 slr and every version of it that was the that was the car so to, for me one of the all-time greatest race cars of all time as well as aesthetically is the 300 sl 300 slr they would have continued to rule the racing world, except the, the horrible accident uh, killed, yes. I think, 87 spectators, over 80 spectators. I think it was 87 spectators at Le Mans. And uh, Mercedes, uh, the Mercedes sailed into the crowd at very high speed, killed 87 people, including, yeah. the, driver, including the driver. And uh, it was absolutely, it, it, it remains to this day and will probably always be the worst racing crash in human history. And Mercedes, uh, understandably, pulled out of racing. Yeah, that was um, the Le Mans disaster. Yeah, right. You're right. As 83 spectators were killed, 180 injured, and the drivers Pierre Levey, who um, and Mercedes pulled out, and they were they were at the absolute peak of of racing at that time. So I saw that was the first room, and then the next 
corner you come around is where they have a display of the 300 SLs. Mm. So the very the very first car is the 300 SLR Ru- Rudolph Uhlenheide Coupe, one of two. So what happened was in 1955, they had the 300 SLR race cars, and then they developed the car for 1956, which is going to be a closed coupe version of the SLR for racing season. But of course, Mercedes had pulled out. So there are two of them. So Rudolph Ullenhout, who was one of their technical directors, kept these cars and drove them all the time. So this is the one that sold for 100. This is the partner to the one that just recently sold for 135 million euros. So it's there in front. Behind that is an SLR. Behind that is 300 SL Roadster. Then there's a Gullwing behind that. So you see all these SLs and SLRs together. And I was just like, to me, that was just the most, there's no greater history of three cars. At least I thought until I got later in the exhibit. I was just, I was like, I just couldn't believe it. I was taking all these pictures and just, I walked around and around these cars. Just, they're just unbelievable. The SLRs are the pinnacle and, and, uh, that, uh, you know, any of the SLRs, the, the open top ones, uh, I am sure if they have racing history and there's a few of them that they preserve that they have in the museum that do have amazing racing history, particularly the, the Milamilia record holder driven by, uh, Sterling Moss with Dennis Jenkinson. As I'm going to get to that. Yeah. That I'm going to get to that, that one. That's going to be the most expensive. Uh, if they ever sold it, it would be the most valuable car. I'm sure it's the most valuable car in the world or in the world. Yeah. But, uh, for me, you know, what stands out for me? I still remember this is almost 10 years later and it's kind of, I don't know why it stands out. And I actually did. I spent almost all day there. So I really immersed myself because I had the luxury of time. The one car that stands out, Stefan is it was a 300 SL uh gullwing a, a road car and it was deep black with a red interior and to me i'm like oh that's beautiful and these these racing cars are great you know of course but that's when i'm like that's a road car and it looks so beautiful there's the one they had there currently is a silver gullwing with a red interior and yeah it, the gullwing is just i mean there's just what what a car and for listeners the reason they actually had to do the gullwing was that was a space frame and that's the only way they could get the doors to actually open because you had to climb over the the birdcage frame of the vehicle. They later made modifications, and that's when they came out with the Roadster. Mm-hmm. But the Gullwing was the was the original SLR space frame that was um, with the racing cars. So that's what makes the Gullwing extra special. Modified, yeah, the, modified for for yep. uh, for for road use. <laughs> for road use. So I came out of there. I spent a lot of time there, just walking around in circles, just ooing and aahing. And I didn't think it. Could, I did not think it could get any better. But later on, it did get better. But the next special room was the SL room, dedicated to all the the history of the of the Mercedes Benz SL car. So I walked through all those, and the one that to me was my absolute favorite. Which would what's your favorite SL, Stevo? R one hundred seven. Uh, okay. The R107, which was the longest uh, lasting one. It came out in 1972, I think, and didn't okay. die until 1989. Uh, it's a classic one. Um, the 450, classic 450, 450 SL. SL. Yeah, there were right. a bunch of other ones, but it doesn't matter. It's that generation. And, uh, you know, Richard Gere drove one in, in American Gigolo. Um, it's, it's, it was omnipresent. Uh, you know, uh, the, the first car, by the way, the first new car that John McEnroe bought when he turned pro was a th- was a 450 SL. Um, it did, there was something about it, and for me, the fact that it lasted as long as it did, aged as well as it did, and still looks good today, that's my favorite. I'm supposed to say 300 SL, but that's for me the R107 well, is the one. Yeah, you know, yeah, right. Concerning the 300, the SL, the 300 was an SL. I, I think of that as more of the race era. But I actually yeah. dated a girl in college whose mother had one light blue, and we cruised around, and it was a great car. But my favorite is W113 which is known as the Pagoda Top SL, yeah. um, came out in 63, the 230, 250, and the 280 SLs. I love the the Pagoda Top 280 SL. To me, that would be, because it's so much smaller. And when you see the 450 versus the 280, and you see the old, the old Mercedes sedans, they were so small and low to the ground compared to everything new. Um, so for me, that's the, it's the Pagoda. But in that room, they had the brand new SL. I walked around it and I walked around it and I kept trying to decide I wanted to like it, but 
I'm telling you, Steve-O, that rear end on the new SL is very Porsche-esque. It's rounded, and I'm the new SL is just does not it doesn't do it for me. I well, hate I, to I, say it, but I, I just doesn't. I don't does not appeal. It's probably yeah. I thought it also looked Porsche-esque, and, and I think it's not a coincidence. I mean, they yeah. they absolutely decide. It's like like Mercedes said. All right, uh, we want to make this really compete with the 911. It's now four seat. It used to be two seat. Now it's a four seat. There's only one four seat SL ever, and that was the SLC. SLC, yeah, seventies. It wasn't even. And I got a. I, I know somebody owns one of those. Yeah, yeah. there. I. It was like this weird and weird. It was yeah. a Frankenstein car. They took the SL and they elongated it, and then they stuck these seats in it. And it just looked weird. It didn't. It never sold well. It just was weird looking. But now the new one has four seats, and again, looks a lot like the 911 from the rear. I, I guess they felt like they had to do it. Yeah, I don't know. And then I came around the corner, and then they had the 2008 McLaren MP4 Formula One car that Lewis won his very first championship in the last race of the year in the last corner when he beat Felipe Massa. And there it was. And I was like, oh, my God, that was so cool to see. And I was amazed at how small that car is compared to the new cars. So that was cool. And then the last lower level, you come down and there's, it looks like black tarmac, like, you know, black asphalt, but it's not. And it's a big, long sweeping corner. And it's where they start with basically 1955, all the racing cars going back to the thirties, all the history. So right there wow. is, yeah. So right there is Sterling Moss and Dennis Jenkinson's SLR that he won the Mill Miglian right there. I mean, I could not believe it. I've got a little model of it. And the reason, fans, that, that that car is so significant is he covered 992 miles in 10 hours, 7 minutes, 48 seconds, averaging 99 miles per hour. These are roads through. These are regular small roads in Italy. Going through villages. Through villages. And it's just a feat that is just unbelievable to this day. So to, so to get to see that car that actually won that. And then there was Fangio's 1955 300 SL that he, that, that he won the championship in. I mean, it was SLR. And then there was a 300 SL that had won the career of Pan America all there next to each other. These three Mercedes race cars that won the most important, the most important race of the time. I was just, I was just a starstruck. And then leading, there's a bunch of other race cars. But the, yeah, by the down, way, let's take a moment just to remember that this is 10 years after a devastating military defeat where their factories were, you couldn't have a factory in Germany that didn't get bombed. Right. I mean, they had to rebuild everything and somehow they reconstituted their, their auto industry. And it's, it's amazing in that short period of time that they were winning. It is. They, but they, the, that SLR was just a complete game changer. And listeners, if you get bored sometimes, just look up the SLR, how the engine was slanted and just was unbelievable what they did with that car. And then at the very end, towards the back, the original Silver Arrow Mercedes race car. And so, fans, so what happened was in 1934, they showed up, Mercedes showed up the Nürburgring, um, the Nürburgring with their first race car, and they were one kilogram too heavy. So they, so the mechanics sanded the car down to the bare metal, removing the paint. It passed weight, and it won the race. So that's why you hear Mercedes talks about the Mercedes Silver Arrow. Um, still in Formula One, the Silver Arrow's cars. That's where that came from. That car was there. I saw that car. You know, wow. I was like, I was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And then across on the inside, they had a bunch of display cases. There was Fangio's suit, Fangio's helmet, his goggles, his gloves. And then I saw a staircase on the backside. And I went up the staircase. There was the quadruple Formula One champion trophy for juan manuel fangio and i was just like my oh my, my my grandmother she loved fangio and uh, we called her that when she would drive to so my french grandmother spirited around so i'm a huge fangio fan i've got the the tag fangio limited edition watch and i just just to get to see his car and then his goggle helmets it was just 
it was just a spectacular day for me. It was that's amazing. He's my goat, as you know. And yes, uh, just he is the goat. It's you know, it's amazing that he won as much as he did and that he survived. Yes, he survived, won the four championships in Formula One, different manufacturers, and he he really is. And he was an old he was not a young man either when he did it. So it was it was just, I mean, it was like a kid in a candy shop. I was just, I was like, oh, I was, I was just pulled every direction to see. But I think the thing that I came away the most was that Mercedes racing heritage. Everybody thinks of a racing heritage. They think Ferrari. They really yeah. do. I mean, Ferrari, that, that's because of modern day Formula One. But if you think of true racing heritage, nobody has, Mer Mercedes has the greatest racing heritage. And in modern day, you know, eight constructor championships here with Lewis. Um, Lewis has seven championships, but over Mercedes has eight constructor championships. It's the Silver Arrows is a huge deal. And it all started with the original Silver Arrow and then the 300 SLRs. Um, so it was what a great day. That's an amazing day. It, it, it does make sense. I mean, they made the first car yeah. and then they, they went into racing and they succeeded. And uh, that's cool. So, uh, anyway, uh, Safety wise, you, you, there's Mercedes has done a lot. I guess you want to, you want to touch on that. I, I yeah. Think. I want to touch on that. So they have a, uh, their Mercedes safety innovation wall. So behind the display of via, um, one of the floors is they've got a long wall that has kind of a time frame, the different safety innovations that they've had. And I'm just going to pull out a couple 1959, they came developed the crumple zone and also the wedge pin door lock. So when you close your door and erect, the door didn't pop open. You didn't fall out. Um, 67, they came out with the telescoping steering wheel column with an impact absorber. Because basically, you think about the old cars were just a, a giant steel rod. You're in a car wreck, that thing impaled you like a like a lance. Um, so they had the telescoping column, which um, would collapse. They called the uh, came out with the four spoke safety steering wheel in 71. 78, the anti lock brake system was big with Mercedes. And then 1981 airbags along with seatbelt uh, pretensioners and the seatbelt pretensioners are very important. And they're basically, as well as the airbag are ubiquitous on most every single vehicle that you purchase now. Huge, huge um, safety assets. And then I think you've driven around in Germany, Steve, we can talk about our experience driving around there. You know, driving in a foreign country can be a little bit formidable in terms of, you know, you, different customs, different roadway signs. I was absolutely perfectly comfortable driving in Germany and felt much more, much so more safer than I do here in America. Everybody used their blinker. Everybody goes to speed limit. So when I was driving back and forth to my meetings, I'd be local roads all the way to the Audubon and the speed would go anywhere from 40 kilometers up to hundred kilometers but everybody went the speed within five to seven kilometers of the speed limit. There'd be somebody on occasion would go faster. So what that means, listeners, is there is no speed differential. So when you're going down, everybody's going the same speed. So you've been on the interstate, I'm sure, doing 80 miles an hour, and some idiot doing 50 pulls into your lane. You don't see that. You don't see that over there. Everybody does the speed limit. So no speed differentials. Yeah, that's the thing that stands this, out to me was lane discipline. Uh, oh, yeah. There lane, was an expectation. Lane, yes, absolutely. Yes. I actually drove uh, a little bit on the Autobahn where there was no speed limit. You know, that changes. You know, it, right. they have these signs. Electronic well, yeah, signs right. that are like, okay, now you can go unlimited or now it's 80. The speed limits vary there, which is I found interesting. The same, the same stretch of highway will have, you know, no speed limit at one point. And then uh, during rush hour, they'll say it's 80 kilometers per hour. And then sometimes right. they'll say 60 uh, it depends, and they they vary it to, due to conditions and all sorts of things. But when it was unlimited, you know, cars obviously were going very very fast. But nobody sits in the left lane. They don't they don't do it. Yeah, I mean exactly lane discipline and blinkers. People use their blinkers, and then if you put your blinker wanting to get over, people just let you in. And we had it where there was one point where the left the two lanes merged. Everybody alternated. You know, which was so people are incredibly polite, disciplined that clearly weren't texting on their phones. They weren't talking on their phones. They weren't drinking a big gulp in a 
you know, and eating their breakfast or putting their makeup on and going to work. So it was, it was an absolute pleasure driving over there. Another thing is they put the lanes were all marked, whether it was a straight lane, a left-hand turn lane or a left-hand turn and a straight. So you, you always knew that you were in the right lane. You, you weren't finding yourself at the last minute throwing on your blinker, trying to jockey over into the right lane. Yeah, that was great. And then the other thing I liked the the lights, okay, nobody runs a yellow light over there. When the light turns yellow, you're not going to lock up your brakes. If you, if you have to lock up your brakes, you're going to go through, but you are not going to go through on yellow. And they said, you will get an absolute ticket immediately for going through on a yellow. So the upside to that is the light goes red, then it goes red and yellow, then green. So if you've got a clutch vehicle, you can get it in gear and take off when the light turns green. And let me tell you, when the light turns green, everybody went. And I mean, it's like you do one car didn't go and eight lanes, you know, eight cars ahead and somebody else goes. No, everybody took off. And uh, so it was driving with disciplined drivers was it was an absolute joy. Yeah, I. That was exactly my experience. And I, I really liked it going yellow before it goes green. That's nice because you're like, oh, okay, now it's about to switch. I right. wish we had that here. Uh, although I'll say this, Stefan, you know, this is Europe we're talking about. And uh, the, the lane discipline and you know, using your directionals and all that sort of thing, uh, the orderliness of the roads in Germany was noteworthy, just as the disorderliness of Greece was noteworthy. So, <laughs> you know, it depends <laughs> on where you are. It's, yes. It's the Eurozone. You'd think it'd be the same. Like, oh my gosh. No, but so no, we're not Germany as bad is, as like Italy or, or Greece, but but right. damn, it's crazy. Well, you know, so I mentioned the big gulp thing, you know, so I just looked it up on the internet. Mercedes did not install cup holders until 1994 in the entry-level C-class car. Think about that. They just, they were not going to do it, but they finally had to do it. So, but yeah, driving in Germany, no problem. It was absolute pleasure. I used Waze for navigation, and Waze was absolutely perfect over there. And I only saw two little fender benders. And what's interesting is they have a, basically, when you're in a little fender bender or a wreck, they assign your percentage at fault. So when two people have a fender bender, they will not move their car. They stay put until the police come. And then they investigate it, and then you're assigned a percentage at fault. Which, oh, I didn't know that. I like that. That's great. Yeah, I like it too. So it was what a, it was a wonderful trip. You know, if you're going to go overseas and have time, and you're going to be in Germany, you know, Stuttgart. Stuttgart is nowhere near as beautiful as Munich and Bavaria. But if you're an automotive motorhead, you absolutely have to go to see those two things. All right. Well, next week we'll talk about the. The Porsche, yeah, the Porsche Museum, because that's going to be cool to hear about. And we're, you know, we're out of time now, but uh, what an experience, man. Uh, I just, I'm sorry that, uh, you know, usually what, when I think back to my military days, you know, we, we really didn't work all that hard and uh, <laughs> you had a lot of free time off. I'm sorry you didn't have more free time. Well, it was, a, it was an important meeting that I had to go to and I would have liked more time off, but at least I got to do those two things. Yeah. Well, so, so cool. So anyway. Uh, again, thanks for your service and what a trip. And I cannot wait to hear about the Porsche Museum too. So, yep, we'll we'll talk uh, about the Porsche Museum next. That'll be next time. So, uh, so wrap us up, and and that's it for today. All right, Steve-O, a great podcast today. And listeners, please like, subscribe, do all those things. Check out our website. The website's a little behind, but I'll update it. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, another podcast next week. <laughs>